Well, good morning, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And oh, my God, we are so loaded up with big international stars on our show today. We're talking to people who are the sources of information that we deal with every day that affects our lives, but who are actually the people who create some of these very important sources of information. For example, you know that we like to talk about global warming and, and climate developments. Well, this morning, we're talking to two folks, one from an organization called Climate Interactive, Drew Jones, and another, Gavin Schmidt, from NASA, the NASA, who are the folks who actually develop the information that tells us just how hot things are getting and why and what we can do about it. So we're going to get started with them, and then after that, we're going to have a neurosurgeon on who is one of the the best in the country, and she's going to help us understand a little bit more about the neurological issues that we don't pay that close attention to and we often don't recognize as issues, but often they are. So she's going to help us with that. And then we have a guy named Chris Alfieri. This guy spent a number of years tracking down a lost sculpture that was at the World's Fair and then disappeared, and it is being installed in City Park next week, and he's the guy who found it. Finally, Monique Verdan is a... Homa Indian artist supreme, and she has work up at the River House down in Poitras, Louisiana, and we're going to visit with her. So, Drew, are you there? All right. Hello, Drew. Hi, this is Drew Jones with Climate Interactive. Hi, there you are. For a minute, I wasn't sure where you were. So, Drew, um, I caught that story uh, in the New York Times about how the leaders of the world are getting together in about a month to try to come up with some um, commitment to reducing the carbon emissions, which are the things that come out of our cars and our refrigerators and our air conditioning systems and so on and so on, that are polluting the earth and causing global warming. And um, the the pledges that the countries are making I understand from your organization, may not actually be enough to slow things down, to make a difference in what could eventually, I don't know, burn up the earth? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, um, you know, the, the cup is half full and half empty. The half full is that the pledges that all the countries of the world are bringing to Paris, to the United Nations, will do a lot to make a much better world. So we won't be heading towards the worst-case scenario, which is 4.5 degrees C, very, very warm, but will be only to 3.5, which is not the goal that has been accepted of 2 degrees, but still a lot, lot better, because China has committed to peaking its emissions. The United States is going to reduce its emissions of carbon dioxide. There are many actions that are coming up that will help but it's not enough, and that's why we're really hoping that more countries get involved in reducing their emissions of carbon dioxide. So what has your role been in this? How, how are we actually figuring out what's happening? What is the, what is the, um, what is the, how do you measure it? You know, it's such a, it's one of the things that I think people question a lot is how do you how do you figure this out? And because everybody says, oh, well, there have been hot years in the past and there'll be hot years in the future. There are right. cold years. There are years with more storms, years with less storms. So how do you actually nail it? How we nail it is by not looking year by year, but long, long-term trends. Climate is not about this year or last year. It is really the average of the last 10 years or 20 years. And that trend is we know uh, so well that it is going up and up and up when it comes to temperature. And a lot of what you hear with, oh, there's a lot of uncertainty, is really people who don't like the solutions to climate change who are trying to make it seem like we're really confused about it. We're not. 99% of scientists agree that this is a big problem. And how we figure it out is we forecast into the future hey, if China were to not develop more coal but went towards renewables, if the United States worked on energy efficiency, if we ate, had less cattle that re 
we produce methane, we can calculate, and that's my job. My little team of nine people here in the U.S. are calculating if we did those things, we can see how much better the world would be out into the future using mathematics, good old computer models. So we use them. They work really well. We have a lot of confidence in them, and they see they point us towards huge benefits that could come in the future, not just on climate but on air quality. If we stop burning coal, we don't have as much uh, respiratory problems. We have healthier people, and the many benefits that we're going to see if we get away from fossil fuels. You know, <laughs> there are two things that you said that I, I want to come back to for a minute, but um, – Again, on modeling, give give me another example for people who don't know what modeling means, where we use modeling and how it works. I immediately think of modeling for hurricanes uh, because tropical storms, that's something that we Uh pay attention to every day in this part of the world in the Gulf Coast. Um, So they do modeling for that, right? Isn't that part of how they predict where um, storms are going to land up, and they're fairly accurate. I mean, there's variances, though, between those models. That's always so intriguing. Like, so today they're talking about this hurricane that's out in the Atlantic, and uh, um, uh, most of the models have it going into the Carolinas. Yeah. But the so-called yeah. European model has it kicking back out into the Atlantic. So there's very there's variations on the models, right? Yeah. So how do we know the model's right? What a good question. How do we work with these models? And, and so there's, I, I would encourage you to think less about these models of like where, you know, hurricanes are going to go and what their path is going to be or weather, where there's a ton of uncertainty. <laughs> this is much more like a, a simpler model that you might think of like for a car payment where we're really trying to forecast, well, if you, car costs $10,000, and you know you have to, certain interest rates you have to pay, you can pay it over 24 months or 36 months, and then you have to, then you figure out what your monthly payment is, and it'll do that kind of calculation. We're doing something similar with future carbon emissions, where we're saying, well, China says they're going to grow this much, and they're going to peak in 2030, and then that's pretty simple to see, that they don't have their emissions grow any further. And then we have to figure out how much goes into the ocean, how much goes into plants, and then how much that warms the earth. So there's a lot more certainty in this area, and it's really not questioned much by the scientists. Um, what's questioned is exactly where hurricanes hit, exactly how much wildfire will increase or drought, etc. That's where there's much more uncertainty. We have an area where we're kind of lucky that we get, if we burn coal, oil, and gas, it warms the earth. We have a pretty good idea of how much. So that helps us a lot when we say things like, we just said in the New York Times, that the pledges will cut out a good bit of warming, but not enough. We need to go further, and everybody agrees. You know, Drew, today on the news this morning, there was a lot of hubbub about what Russia's doing in in um Syria, that they are not only taking on ISIS, but other rebel groups, i.e. groups that we support. Um, And so here we are theoretically trying to present ourselves as actually working together um, to deal with the the, uh, challenge of ISIL. But at the same time, getting that cooperation is really not an easy thing, as hard as we work. So, you know, do you really have confidence that we're going to get these countries to cooperate and really um, have some impact? And then how, in turn, are we really going to get those governments to get us to do things like, you just said cattle cause methane, and therefore are you saying we should be less eating less meat? I, you know, <laughs> you, how, how do you get your friend who's a meat eater not to <laughs> eat meat, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, this deal that's coming together, Ban Ki-moon and the, the chair of the process, Cristiano Figueres, they are all in the United Nations this week pulling everybody together, calling everybody, and they've now gotten 120 out of 193 countries to pledge reductions. That covers 80% of global emissions of carbon dioxide. So they really are getting everybody aboard. And somehow they, all these countries disagree about a whole lot, 
but they do all agree that they need to reduce emissions. They've all agreed that we need to um, not warm the Earth more than two degrees above what it was a couple hundred years ago, two degrees C. So it's actually working. Now, the second part of how do you actually get follow-through monitoring and evaluation, that's, that's really hard, and yet it's the kind of thing we do when it comes to weapons around the world. And similarly, it could be related to the way that energy systems work, you know, because we do a pretty good job of keeping track of what those emissions are. But it, let me not, you know, I, I'm not, it's, I'll say it this way. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be worth it. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be worth it. This is unprecedented what we need to do in order to preserve the living systems on which life depends. And it's, it's going to be a big job. But we're humanity. We're smart. We'll figure it out. So jump off the cliff with me for one second, Drew, and then I'm going to call um, a, uh, call on uh, Gavin Schmidt to um, pick up where I leave off with you. Um, <laughs> I look at Mars, and, you know, now they've determined that maybe there was water on Mars, right? Uh-huh. That's the latest thing in the past few days. Um, and I look at it and I say, ooh, is that us? Is that us in a, in, in, a, in a few hundred years, in a thousand years? Is this an inevitable evolutionary development of a, of a, of a planet? Or can I really jump on your confidence that we can, we can fix it? Uh, you can jump on my confidence that we can fix it. B, we got one planet. There is no planet B, as Ban Ki-moon said recently in the Secret- Secretary General of the U.N., um, we got there's no planet B that's going to work for us. We got to fix the one that we're on. We can do this. Uh, yeah, let's forget about Mars as, as a plan B. Listen, Andrew, stay in touch with us um, and, and keep us updated. Um, you sound incredibly enthusiastic and confident, as you said, and, and, and I, I do feel like you know what you're talking about. So um, keep us updated, okay? Yeah. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And I, I, I just, uh, I, I can't tell you how much, uh, truly, we on Earth appreciate what your organization is doing. So, guys, this is the Climate Interactive, and you can actually go online and see the organization and really um, check in with them and, and, and learn things. Is that right? Because part of your job, Andrew, are you still there? Did I lose you already? I think I just lost you. Okay. They they not only work out these models, but they also work on keeping us informed on educating us. So I really urge you all to truly um, check in on uh, Climate Interactive. Um, I'm waiting for my next guest. I don't think we have him quite um, uh, lined up yet. Um, and uh, we'll we'll um, we'll just uh, hope that we get him uh, real quick. But in the meantime. I've got two people in the studio with me that I'd like to actually introduce to you because um, they helped us track folks down for this show. And, and, you know, I couldn't go on the air, quite frankly, without the help of people who are essentially volunteers and hopefully uh, they have careers in the business one way or another. But um, let me let them introduce themselves to you for two seconds. We have Olivia. Hello, uh, my name is Olivia Marcel. I am a graduate of the Louisiana Scholars College from uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana in May. I am an aspiring journalist, and I've got my fellow intern with me. I'd like her to introduce herself whenever she's ready. Hi, I'm Nina Feldman. I'm an independent audio producer based here in New Orleans um, and helping Jean produce the show. It's really exciting to be here. For uh, for the first show, and I think with that we can turn it back over to Jean and hear from Gavin Schmidt, who's on the line. Gavin, are you there? Hello, Gavin. So Gavin Hello. is hi, Gavin. Hi. So you're. <laughs> we have a little bit of a tricky problem with our phones today, folks. I just want you to know that's part of what's going on. But Gavin Schmidt is with NASA, and um, he has delved into how we have to, again, develop these models and figured out, you know, how to measure what's happening. So he's kind of, uh, in a sense, a compatriot, a, uh, an associate of Drew Jones. And I, I want to understand from you, Gavin, you know, how did we get where we are today in being able to 
really understand and predict what's happening with, with global warming? So our understanding of the climate system as a whole uh, has, has increased enormously over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, mainly because uh, the computers have got much faster and much bigger. Uh, the thing about climate, when you start to look at it, is that it's so complicated. There are so many different moving parts, the clouds, air pollution, dust, and the, the ocean circulation, the sea ice, all of those different physical things interact uh, in very complex ways to give us the patterns uh, that we see in the weather and the, uh, and the patterns we see over the past climate record. Uh, and dealing with that complexity has really always been the challenge. Uh, and so as computers have got bigger and faster and we've been uh, measuring more and more different aspects of the climate system, uh, both from stations but also from the satellites, uh, we've been able to progressively add in more and more of those features and end up with a more and more skillful idea about what the climate system and, and even the weather system is doing. What is the weather system doing? Because, you know, we have been dealing with a lot of really um, crazy swings in the weather of late. And we here in New Orleans certainly have um, particularly had issues, obviously. I mean, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary of Katrina, which was the worst right. storm that ever hit the entire United States of America, let alone the Gulf Coast. So, um, and, and then you have, of course, as you know, huge uh, tornadoes uh, in, in the Midwest, um, more than usual flooding in places that you just don't expect it and so on. So, um, again, I, I think this is what's actually brought it home to people that y'all aren't making this up because there isn't... <laughs> I know, yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. kidding. You know, there are people uh, of, of certain political persuasions who are trying to say, hey, you know, we don't believe the scientists. Let's say if you can't right. believe the scientists, right. who can you believe? But anyway, um, yeah. So, so uh, you raise a really good point. Um, one of the, uh, the earliest uh, measurements that, that we made where we said, oh, no, look, something's going on, uh, were in things like the global mean temperatures. So that's the temperature averaged over the whole globe or, uh, you know, things that are going on in the Arctic. And those are the places where, you know, the signal is large enough that you can get away from the noise, right, so you can see the signal coming out of the noise. But they're not the aspects of the climate system that people interact with on, on, a, on a physical basis or a visceral basis. Uh, so the science was way ahead of uh, what people's perceptions of the changes were. Uh, but we started noticing these changes way back in the 1980s. Uh, and now we've had 20, almost 30 years uh, more uh, change and increasing and accelerating change. And so now those changes are being manifest not just at the global level, but also at the regional and local level. So people are noticing that sea level is rising. People are noticing that rainfall is becoming more intense. People are noticing that heat waves are becoming more common uh, and that those are exacerbating the drought situations that have occurred, uh, you know, both in Texas and in California and in, uh, you know, Washington State and the like. So, uh, people have noticed that, that these are leading to increasing wildfires and other changes in ecosystems that are quite sensitive to, to these small feral changes. So, so I, I, I want to check back in on a couple of things that you said. First of all, you said that it was the 1980s when you started noticing. Really? Only then? So, in theory, like, people had speculated about how our emissions of carbon dioxide particularly were going to yes. affect the climate uh, way back in the 19th century. Uh, and we understood what the greenhouse effect was back in the 19th century. Uh, and people, uh, even in the 1930s, had, had basically speculated, wow, you know, we're burning all this coal, we're burning all this oil, that might have an effect on the climate. Uh, but the detection of that change, right, as opposed to it just being a theoretical possibility, uh, really only came about in the, in the 1980s. Um, you, might, you might recall uh, my predecessor at NASA, James Hansen, uh, made a very bold statement in Congress in 1988 saying, no, no, global warming is here and it's happening right now. And that was a bit of a shock, both to, uh, I think, the, uh, the media and the public, uh, but also to other scientists who really weren't necessarily paying that much attention. So but really, it was only in the 1980s that, uh, uh, that we detected a change, and 
you know, 20, 30 years later on, uh, we're now seeing that change manifest in many, many different ways. Okay, now, on accelerating, um, you know, there's, there's, I'm not a good mathematician, let me just yeah. state that, but um, there are what are called, I guess, geometric pro- progressions. So after a certain point, things start rising faster. So you're, you're talking about accelerating change. How, how, yeah. how bad is that looking? So since we detected global warming, uh, we continue to burn coal, and we're burning coal and oil at an accelerating rate. Every year we're burning more fossil fuels. Um, and so that means that we're putting more of those drivers into the atmosphere, which means that the planet itself, uh, because of the delays in the system, is having to play catch-up uh, ever more rapidly. Uh, and so the changes in carbon dioxide uh, this year and last year are twice what they were in the 1980s. So uh, we're pushing the system. It's like we're putting our foot on the accelerator of the system, um, and we're seeing the buffers coming up, and we're kind of crashing through the trees, uh, but we've still put, got our foot on the accelerator. On the other hand, I understand that um, once we actually get started on serious efforts to reduce emissions, and I think ultimately we've really got to come to terms with um, decreasing uh, our use of fossil fuels. I mean, it, we, we sort of are beginning to realize it, but we're not focused on it. We're not working on it hard enough. But right. I, I understand that you have said that once we really, you know, jump on the train here and really work at it, once we get started, that reducing the emissions will become easier. How, how, does, how does that work? So uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of things that have happened in the past. So, uh, so back in the 1980s, uh, one of the big problems we had was with acid rain, uh, particularly in the northeast. Uh, and that was caused from uh, sulfur particles, sulfur dioxide, uh, coming out of uh, the smokestacks of coal-burning power stations. Um, uh, and before people started tackling it, the estimates for how much it would cost to fix were enormous, like, you know, absolutely huge numbers. Uh, but that was when people had an incentive to try and prevent anything from happening. Once the mandate came in that those things had to be reduced, and they did it using a, a, a cap-and-trade system, uh, engineers really focused on the problem. They tried things, they tried it again, they tried again, and they made it much, much cheaper than they thought it was going to be. So by the time uh, they'd actually solved the problem, uh, the cost estimates were 40 times less than what EPA had estimated. So it's kind of like uh, I, I, I'm a, uh, a dilettante history student, and, and I recall so strongly, this is something that stuck in my mind from all of the classes I took in, in life, that um, whatever trend you see out there, it's going to change one way or another. Yes. It's not going to stay the same. So That's a, yes. Right. So I'm hearing you say that we can, in fact, change this trend. And, and, you know, Drew Jones was very optimistic that we can um, make a difference because sometimes we feel a little bit, um, you know, fatalistic about this. And so it's kind of hard to gear up to do things like not eat meat if you're a meat eater, um, you know, or or try to use um, different kinds of fuel sources for your energy, get solar power for your house, which is very expensive process, actually. It, it does reduce your cost in the long term, but the investment, the capital investment, is a pretty pretty big hit unless there is subsidization, which we had in Louisiana right. until recently. We lost it recently, which is unconscionable. And, and then right. finally, the other thing that you mentioned that I want to come back to is you talked about the rising sea levels. That is, of course, for us here in the Gulf Coast, the biggest worry. And there's a lot right. of people who really are not coming to terms with the, with the fact that within our lifetimes, many of us are going to have to move back from the coast. Do you right. agree with that? So, I mean, Louisiana, you, you've been hit with, uh, with a kind of triple whammy, unfortunately. So you've got rising sea levels, which is affecting pretty much everybody. Uh, but you've also got um, a loss of wetlands right along the coast, uh, a lot of it through cutting of canals and uh, an oil and gas exploration uh, right on the coast. Uh, that's led to, uh, to, a, to a lot of uh, saltwater intrusions that's also lost land. And because of the channelization of the Mississippi, 
a lot of those wetlands are not getting the sediment that they used to get before uh, the Mississippi was put into canal. So all three of those things are causing you to lose uh, to lose uh, land around the edge, and uh, and as you know, you know you've lost about the equivalent of the state of Delaware since the 1930s, um, and that's that's a huge huge area, and that's uh, and that's increasingly affecting the centers of big population, uh, not just New Orleans but all the way across the Gulf Coast. And, and, and uh, so, there, there know, are islands the, all over the world that are disappearing. It's not just in the Gulf Coast, of course. So we're right, in a sense right. a poster but child. The places where there are other things going on, you know, it, it, those are the places where the rising sea level is going to have the largest effect. Right. So you know, you've got other things going on, and the sea level is just making things worse. And these things don't add linearly. They, uh, when you say that a geometric progression, they. Um, they, they, they double and triple the effects uh, of the other effects. I actually use the right term. Gavin, thank you so much, <laughs> and I'll say the same thing to you that I said to Drew. Uh, keep us informed. Stay in touch as things develop. Um, this is a really um, – this is a very uh, key issue for us here on the Gulf Coast. So, you know, it affects Absolutely. us. It is for everybody yeah. on Earth, but it's, it's particularly um, important here. So thank you're, you very much for what, so, for what you're doing uh, for you us. You can never be of help. Just let us know. Thank you. All right, well, folks, we have, as I said before, a um, really interesting leading um, person who is knowledgeable about how our nervous systems work. And while a lot of us worry about our heart, worry about diabetes, worry about our weight, worry about our orthopedic issues, um, cancer, there's this hidden issue that we're not that focused on, and that's our nervous system. So Dr. Karen Marasco is a neurosurgeon from the University of Michigan, highly honored, who was here in town for a conference. And a couple days ago, um, Nina and I went out to visit with her at the conference and um, did an interview with her because she's left town already for today. So I, I wanted to catch her while she was here and see her in person because she's an amazing woman. She has actually a disability, and despite that disability, she she's this incredible surgeon. Um, so we're going to listen to that interview now, and, and I hope maybe this will alert you to some of the things you kind of have to keep an eye on. And we're going to go to our recording. I'm the chair of neurosurgery at the University of Michigan, and I'm the Julian T. Hoff Professor of Neurosurgery. My specialty is pediatric neurosurgery. One of the um, areas of health issues that people experience that they know least about and think about last is neurology. And um, neurology affects many other parts of our system. And we don't really think of it until we've been to maybe two specialists and they say, oh, you need to see a neurologist. Is, it, is there any way that you can talk about uh, neurological issues that help people understand from jump start how to recognize that maybe there's a neurological issue? Uh, I think that the, you're correct in that the neurologic aspect of healthcare is often that which is least understood, even by other healthcare providers. Um, as a neurosurgeon, I operate on the brain and the spinal cord and the peripheral nervous system. The diagnosis of neurologic disorders is done sometimes by neurologists, sometimes by neurosurgeons. I think that patients need to start thinking about a neurologic process when it starts to involve things like brain function, memory, speech, movement, and the other thing to recognize is that the, the, the control of the body in terms of muscle, in terms of many different things, is done by the nervous system. And as such, it can have a profound effect, but be something that you don't necessarily tumble to instantaneously. Um, we think about the nervous system as being one that's related only to pain, but it's not just that. It's the ability to have motion with your arms, with your legs, the ability to process thought so that you can come out with clear sentences. The ability, frankly, to swallow, to speak. The ability, in the, in the most basic of levels, to breathe without thinking about it, to have a heart that beats without thinking about it. All those things are controlled by the nervous system. And so it, it affects so many different areas that to, to, to take it apart and to understand what's being affected does take years of study, years of knowledge. Um, neurosurgical residencies are seven years long. 
And so they take a long time to, to learn that specific area of expertise. So I actually am very close to somebody who has multiple sclerosis. Um, it took about 20 years, literally, for that diagnosis to be made. So he, And you can understand why that might be the case, because it's something in which you may have a neurologic problem for a short period of time, and then it gets better. Another period of time, it gets better. And that's one of the difficult problems with MS, because you can have episodes in which you improve, and then other episodes after which you get a little bit worse. And so the fact that there are multiple locations within the nervous system that problems can occur and that they can happen over multiple periods of time means that you're kind of hitting a moving target. And in in this particular case that I'm familiar with, the the person had progressive. So actually there wasn't as much episodic. It was just a slow, steady increase in like a little tingling in the arm to what was a shuffling walk to what became the dragging foot that uh, is a very recognizable symptom of of, of, uh, MS. But that took a long time. And um, quite frankly, the doctors that he saw, a heart doctor, um, I think an orthopedic doctor, it just didn't emerge that it could be this neurological issue. So what can a patient who's going through something that maybe doctors are not getting to do to better get to the to the right diagnostic answer? I think getting to the right diagnostic answer often means asking the question again and again and also bringing up some possibilities. I mean, I, I think when you're talking about something like numbness and tingling, at least for someone like me, I always think the nervous system because that can often be uh, part of it. But, you know, you talk to someone who's a primary care physician and they may talk about the fact that they're just starting on some new medication and that could be one of the side effects of it. So I think part of it is to be persistent to ask the question again and again. Secondly is to, if you will, start to explore. And I think that the resources that are now available to patients on the Internet in in a variety of books, et cetera, will allow them to at least begin to understand some things. That doesn't mean you should be self-diagnosing or self-treating, but it does mean that perhaps you want to get to know a little bit more about yourself and your body. One of the most important things that a patient can do is to understand exactly what would, what is the norm for them. And when they when that becomes not so, then begin to recognize that something's going on. So the Internet is kind of a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. It's Absolutely. Like the rest of the world, you, you never know uh, if you've hit on a site that's a phony baloney or the real deal. H- how do you distinguish? I think you look at the origin of the sites. And so you look at things like... Um, where where are you getting this information? Are, are they reputable sites? Are they sites in which there is clear um, uh, ownership of what's going on? You know, major organizations, the American Heart Association, um, major sites like the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons, the Congress of Neurologic Surgeons, um, those have inf- important information for, for patients on them as well. Or some uh, hospitals. Some hospitals, some uh, programs. And I think you want to look at that. I think Probably the most dangerous place is the blogosphere because you never know who's writing about what's going on. Many times I think people interpret certain aspects of their care incorrectly. Um, they're, they're, they're inaccurate about what they're seeing either happened to them or what was done to them or what the diagnosis was, etc. And that becomes, I think, a lot more uh, complicated. In most cases, institutions are trying to provide clear and accurate information. And I think going to some of the university websites, some of the other you know, major organizations' websites, you're going to at least see that people are trying to provide you with information. And I would strongly recommend you don't look at just one, you look at multiple places, and you begin to get an understanding. I often find that many of my patients are among the best, best educated in the world because so many of the things I deal with are um, pretty rare, pretty unusual, and as such, the parents that have studied this particular problem and are taking care of their kid with the problem will often know absolutely a tremendous amount. And they're, they're valuable resources. They're, they're also, it's wonderful to talk to an educated partner in the healthcare. Well, speaking of your specialty, pediatric, um, that must be really a, a difficult um, a place for uh, people who are trying to figure out what's going on, a mother and a father with a child, that it's hard to interpret the symptoms. The child can't necessarily express what he or she is experiencing. So how do they find you? 
Um, I think that if you look at it, uh, many times they're referred by their pediatrician. Many times the parents themselves will ask for evaluation. Um, as you watch a child play, that's probably the most valuable neurologic exam that you can do. And so particularly in young children who aren't capable of following commands, you really try to look for um, asymmetries, maybe in movement, uh, changes in function, loss of milestones in which a child was developing at a certain level and then began to lose some milestones. Uh, these are all the things. And, and the other thing, most pediatric neurosurgeons and most folks that deal with peds will tell you, if a mother tells you that something's wrong, you better believe it. And the vast majority of cases, the mom or the, any one of the parents will be a, a really good um, bellwether as to what's going on. There are exceptions to that rule, but, that, but, but pretty much if a parent is telling you there's a problem with their child and they seem reasonable and logical and particularly caring of their child, you'll, you, they're usually right and you just haven't figured it out yet. So um, <coughs> you've achieved um, a very high level of, of recognition and um, expertise uh, in your life. How did you do that? Chance favors the prepared mind. I think I had great individuals who have mentored me. I've been given great opportunities. Um, I've been at you know good institutions. At the time that I was training in uh, neurosurgery, I knew that I was excited by the central nervous system. I was always fascinated by it when I was in college, even when I was in uh, medical school. I'd actually thought that at some point I might become a psychiatrist because I was fascinated by the mind. But then I also realized that I was a fairly um, hands-on person. I'd like to operate. Um, I'd like to see a problem, fix a problem, next problem. And surgeons are very much like that. Um, I loved anatomy. I love the dissections of anatomy. Um, and I still, you know, still enjoy that aspect of surgery tremendously. Uh, in my own case, I think, you know, you, you say I've been successful. I think all of us recognize that our success often comes because there are people who have given us a chance and an opportunity. In the years when I first applied to a neurosurgical residency, there were not a lot of women in neurosurgery. And I was applying often as one of the first women that they had seen or had in their programs, etc. So being given an opportunity was the first thing that happened. And for me, I trained at Columbia. You know, Columbia was a place that had a lot of experience with uh, uh, neurologic disorders. They had the New York Neurologic Institute as part of Columbia. And so being given the chance to become um, involved with that was absolutely capable of shaping my opinions. I can still remember the first operation that I went and I operated on with a, as a medical student and seeing that operation and understanding it and just being blown away by it. It was like uh, thunderstruck. You know, people talk about falling in love. This was absolutely the case. And then I began the hard, and it was difficult, process of deciding, okay, you're a woman in a field that's l largely men. You're a, a woman with a disability in a field that's largely men who are, you know, athletic and football players and all of that. And I decided I had to ask myself probably the most important question, was I capable of doing it or were there going to have to be changes that would be made simply because of my disability? And I decided that it was really important that I find out whether I had the stamina, the ability to do it. And so one of the things I did was I spent a lot of time in neurosurgery. Every free moment I had as a third-year medical student, I followed around neurosurgeons. I followed around attending staff, resident staff, to make sure I could do it, one, physically, and two, emotionally, and more importantly, that I had the, the, the knowledge base to be able to do it well. Um, I chose so pediatric that, neurosurgery because that was the time. That was, uh, I'm sorry, we had a little tail there, but um, that, that was... Um, Really, wasn't that kind of a fascinating um, interview? And I, I think the thing that, that she said that's going to stick with me forever is if you have an issue, a health issue, and you don't feel like you got the answer yet, just keep asking. Don't be embarrassed. I am one of those people who, if uh, my doctor has not satisfied my questions, I, I do that. But I, having a doctor say it's okay to do that for me was really, um, I guess, empowering. I, I, I want to follow that advice going forward. Um, okay, now we're going to switch to another sort of like, you know, to, to some extent, again, neurological um, issues require a lot of investigation and, and tracking things down. You have to be something of a detective. Well, 
There's a guy we're going to uh, be talking with in just a moment now, Chris Alfieri, who is a attorney, but um, is very involved in the arts, and um, he turned out to be the detective of a whole bunch of us, because my husband and I tried too, who got into the game of trying to find a huge sculpture, a fountain, that was at the World's Fair. Some of you may remember it. It was called The Wave, and it's by an artist named Linda Benglis, who is from Louisiana. She's from Lake Charles, actually. And um, this, this big piece of sculpture... You couldn't believe that it could just plain disappear, but it did for almost 20 years. Chris. Hi, Jean. How are you? Chris, I'm fine. Chris, how did you find that thing? You know, honestly, um, thank you for having me on this morning. It's a pleasure to speak with you um, about this sculpture because it's such an interesting story. Um, and let's you know, make sure I, everybody knows. I just want to point out, in, in, uh, in case we lose track here sure. and get buried in the in the treasure hunt, um, it will be dedicated on Tuesday at 10:30 in the morning at, in City Park, right on the lake. That's correct. And so yep. after that, it'll be a fountain. Right now, it's just a great, beautiful sculpture, but it will in fact be a fountain as yes, of indeed. Tuesday. So that's why we're sort of doing this story right now. Go ahead. Great. So, well, uh, you know, the, the, the first um, notice that I had of it really was a, a phone call from Linda uh, in, in January, I think, of 2014. And, uh, you know, as I have basically pieced it together, you know, Linda, Linda produced the sculpture for the World's Fair in 1982. Um, and she basically lost track of it over the years. Effectively, um, it was part, she was part of a concourse of artists. I think there were maybe three or four hundred artists that, that the, uh, the world, that the World's Fair asked for applications from, uh, to do the work. And she was one of three artists that were selected, and she produced a fountain. And it was really sort of a departure for her, but something that she had been thinking, uh, about and wanting to do, uh, for a long time. And of course, the, the, the form really relates to a lot of the work that she had been doing forever, but um, well, I think and, and, and also now it kind of relates to the um, to the critters that uh, many of us have seen in the beasts of the storm. I mean, it yeah, is, it is. It's a it's a critter. It's it's more than just a an abstract sculpture, which is basically what it is. But it takes on the dimensions of a critter. So it's going to be a lot of fun to visit it out in City Park. But, Chris, yeah. I want to move right into the, the treasure hunt because yeah. I, I know about the fair. And, and, yeah, we had a lot of great art. People probably don't remember that as much as they remember something like the Wonder Wall or um, some of the rides and so forth. But um, so so what was the first? I mean, I remember when my husband, when Tan and Bob Tan and my husband and I were trying to track it down, too. Mm-hmm. And we got as far as Kenner. <laughs> yeah. Well, well basically, it, 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 what ended up happening was, um, you know, Linda started thinking about it after Katrina. She sort of wondered where what it would it become of it and where it had ended up. Um, and the the treasure start really really did begin uh, at Kenner. That's that's when I was made aware of it for the first time. Um, I think that she reached out. Linda reached out to some of her local colleagues down here. I know that she reached out to you and Bob and also to Bill Fagley, uh, who's a close friend of hers, who's one of the curators at NOMA, and basically, uh, you know, discovered that it was in the hands of Kenner. It had been basically had been donated to Kenner uh, by a gentleman by the name of Carl Ebert, who was an original – he was a, a local businessman. He bought the had, piece from Linda after the storm, basically. And, and he bought the sculpture from Linda after the storm, and that's when she, and, and, and after that is when she lost track of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, right. He was a and printer. So, yeah, it had sort of an interesting history. I mean, after that, it, it after the World's Fair, it went off to Monte Carlo. It was exhibited uh, in front of the Casino de Monte Carlo for about six months, and then it was put back on a ship and came here, and it ended up in storage for many years. And then it was donated to the city of Kenner. And Kenner, not knowing what to do with it, um, put it on a loading dock in a former sewage uh, treatment plant. 
uh, sort of out. In, oh, what? Yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, sort of it was sort of under this kind of portico. Um, Somebody thought somehow a wave sculpture belonged in the sewage and water treatment plant. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know really what what went into the decision to put it there, but uh, that's where it ended up, and uh, that's where it lived for well. I mean, you you, you got to do the math. It was 30-plus years from beginning to end. Part of that, it was in storage, and then a good portion of it, it was sort of sitting outside. So by the time I became aware of it, it was already it was missing a piece. It had been sitting outside for many years. Uh, the, the finish on it was, was sort of damaged and deteriorated. And Linda just really wanted to, to, to see what we could do to sort of bring it back to public view. And that's when we started... Uh, working with the city of Kenner to to negotiate putting it back in Linda's hands so that she could do the restoration herself as the living artist who originally created it, and wow. um, and that's really that's really where the fun started. And that was um, that was as I said, sort of in January, um, we negotiated with Kenner, uh, the city of Kenner, until June of 2014 when we. Um, received approval from them and, and came up with an agreement to, to have it restored. And Linda brought it back to the Modern Art Foundry, where it was originally cast. Um, and that's another sort of beautiful detail of this story, is that, um, is that Bob Spring, who was the second-generation owner of Modern Art Foundry in New York, worked with Linda to cast it originally in the early 80s. Um, after Bob passed away, uh, the company is now um, uh, headed up by Jeffrey Spring, his son. And it was Jeffrey who worked with Linda on the restoration. Um, so it's just kind of a beautiful story, even that um, component of it. Um, and, then, and then, of course, you know, we, we've had some angels involved, the yeah. museum, the park itself. Absolutely. So the, the, the sculpture was finished in January, and we, we really didn't know where to, what to do with it because Kenner wasn't yet ready to, to exhibit the sculpture. We didn't want to put it back in, in storage for another, you know, who knows how long. So um, we reached out to the Hellas Foundation, and the Hellas Foundation, as you know, has just been support incredible supporters of the arts. Just great supporters yeah. of the arts here, um, and have done so much with sculpture on the Poydra Street um, corridor exhibition, and they seem like a really um, perfect fit. And in fact, they were thrilled uh, to work with us to bring it back. Um, so, really, it was a collaboration between Linda the city of Kenner, um, Hellas Foundation, and City Park, really, who um, agreed to, 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 to display the sculpture um, in that little kind of portion that's kind of carved out of the, of the uh, big lagoon. When you first, on your initial approach to the museum, you'll see it on your right. I know it's really beautiful. Uh, I've seen it out there. It's, it's been on the cover of uh, Gambit. I saved a bunch of copies of it for Linda because it's, it looks so beautiful. It's one of the first times I think I've ever seen a piece of sculpture on the front page of of, of one of our uh, media in town. That's not that doesn't happen every day. So it's, you're right. It's really a, a great thing that uh, is getting that recognition. Absolutely. And, and Linda really is a daughter of, of the state. I mean, yeah. uh, not only from Lake Charles, but she studied at Newcomb and, um, you know, headed up to New York and uh, became very famous up there because she was actually one of the things about Linda that has always struck me as so important is that she's not only an artist, but she's really a manager of her career. And it's something that I tell artists all the time. There are artists who make art and there are artists who make art and build their career. And those yeah. are two different things. And she's really known how to do that. And that's how she got us all motivated down here to go you know, get into the process of tracking this down. But sure. you're the guy who uh, pulled it off. You, you, you actually, you, you did it. You got it. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was honestly, I got to tell you, probably one of the most um, enjoyable and exciting things that I've done uh, in my professional life as an attorney. <laughs> I got to tell you, um, we, you know, I do practice in the area of art law, which encompasses a lot. Um, but this is sort of one of those once-in-a-lifetime projects that just sort of falls in your lap, and it's so exciting because, as you correctly point out, Linda Benglis really is 
a Louisiana treasure. Hometown girl. Uh, yeah. I mean, she's yeah. one of America's most significant living artists. I mean, this is a woman who Life magazine in 1970 called the heir to Pollock. I mean, she was she she has been around for a long time, and she's highly prolific and very restless. She's always doing something new and beautiful, and she's had a couple of major retrospectives, as you know, at major institutions. And and, uh, it, it, and that restlessness is is catchy. If you're around yeah. her, you got to get right into the oh, happy, yeah. get into the rhythm with her. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much. I um, uh, just thank you for what you did, and thank sure. you for spending some time with us. And I know I'll see you next week, and uh, we'll celebrate together out there on the greens, uh, having this. Uh, big beast of the of the southern wild yes. out in our lake thank you thank, thank you for for having me and look one quick super quick thing if you're if your listeners want to see a short video that was produced by art 21 all they need to do is just google art 21 documentary linda bangless and they will come up it's a short seven or eight minute mini documentary that really kind of takes you through the story a little bit but shows the wave in its original state how we found it and the restoration and what it looks like today so that's great thank yeah. you Thanks, all right Jean. great see you soon all right bye-bye thank you chris now that that's one hometown girl and um a sculptor and we're actually about to talk with yet another um, Monique Verdan. We tried to get her on um, last week, folks, and we ran out of time. And so I've been working very hard, although just barely successfully, at, at, at making sure that I have uh, some time to talk with her. And, and she is a home Indian and um, lives in St. Bernard Parish um, and has work on exhibit now at the River House, uh, which is a new museum in St. Bernard Parish, the first um, art museum in St. Bernard Parish, and it sits n next to a uh, sculpture garden that uh, has been created um, largely due to the commitment of the Torres Burns Foundation and, and, and with a little help from the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, we've been helping them curate the show there. And um, it's such a gorgeous bucolic site. And I want to tell you, this weekend, the weather is going to be so gorgeous. This is the weekend to go out there. From 11 to 4 on Saturday and Sunday, it's open. And to see the artwork that's in the museum, as well as uh, what's out in the sculpture garden, is a pleasure. And Monique is in both. Monique, are you there? Yeah, hello. Hi. I'm, I finally got you on. So, um, Monique, you have these beautiful photographs which you have framed yourself so beautifully in a really rustic fashion inside the River House Museum, um, and then at 8211 Sarrow Lane. But I'm gonna before I get off the air, I'll tell everybody how to get there. Um, and then you have um, a sculpture outside that is actually something that invites artists and other people to uh, to play with, to be a part of. So explain to me about your piece that's outside and how that came to be and, and what you're trying to do with it. Yeah, uh, so it's, uh, I've been calling it the Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange, um, which I've been working uh, collectively with uh, artists and architects and uh, storytellers and just uh, my grandmother and community people who know the history of this place. Um, here in St. Bernard, Eastern St. Bernard primarily. And it's an ongoing interactive community project um, that's also dedicated to collecting and distributing native, traditional, and medicinal plants, um, as well as local knowledge and history. And so the, the sculpture is built out of um, shrimp nets and photographic transparent, um, these pho photographs that are printed on transparencies. Um, People are welcome to, to take these prairie plants and seeds and also um, seeds that are, uh, you know, grow here native, um, good for butterflies and also other pollinators. And um, so the first one we activated was in March, and this is the second activation. It's really an honor to be at such a special site at the Crevasse um, 22, which holds so much history there. And um, also this uh, this interactive experience is not only about reflecting on, you know, what, where we've come from and what it is that we are from um, with the native plants, but also where it is that we're going 
So there's a lot of um, maps that are also part of this installation for people to kind of look at and think about, you know, where are the restoration um, plans as of right now in eastern St. Bernard Parish. And, um, and also to step back and look at other maps that show where all of the pipelines and the, you know, the United States are, and, and also to kind of go in a little closer and see where all of the pipeline canals here in the Mississippi Delta are. And so just to kind of use it as a, as a space for people to come inside and to look at and, um, you know, hopefully have more conversation and dialogue about where we are and where we want to go, you know, where we've come from, where we're going. So um, I'm just, it's, uh, I was really so honored that the project was um, awarded a platform fund, which was um, given through the Andy Warhol Foundation and then locally was uh, distributed by Ashe, Press Street, and Pelicanbaum. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see this work ending anytime soon, and we're just starting to do some, um, also some more outreach with doing photo restoration services. So this will be an ongoing building. Um, but right now, it's there, and it has these little cypress trees growing inside. And like I said, there are these native and medicinal and prairie plants that people are welcome to take and um, a lot to look at. So. And, and how can, can somebody actually add to the piece? So there is our website, but we're also getting ready to start. I'm um, figuring out the dates right now. Towards the end of October, early November, uh, we're going to start a series of workshops that will go up until March of 2016 because we'll be having the third activation of the Land Memory Bank at the Los Isleños Fiesta, which is always a great time. Uh, of the year in this part of St. Bernard. So, um, so yes, so there's our website, which is landmemorybank.org, um, and you can connect with us through that, that way. But then, like I said, we'll be having these more public um, workshops coming up uh, starting at the end of October, early November. And so just so everybody understands, the piece is like a dome, and you it kind is. of you enter into the dome, and, and you see these uh, images that you have attached to it and these um, green matter of one variety mm-hmm. or another that, that, that you've attached to it. Um, and so they can really kind of experience this little history that you've built up. Yeah, I mean, right now that's um, kind of in, in the building of the project because there's many... Um, different, uh, you know, branches of the what, what it is that we're trying to grow. But, um, yeah, right now it's, uh, you know, I've been photographing this part of the world um, since the late 90s, and I'm from here originally. And um, so that it's, it's, you know, the, the photographs are my personal reflection right now, but in moving forward, I'm looking for other people's personal histories because, I think that so often, um, you know, especially post Katrina and Rita, we've had many different um, anthropologists and historians come down to tell the story of this place, and so much is changing so fast. I'm interested in the people telling the story of this place, um, and so, so yeah, so it it represents my reflection. But as, as we move forward, there are different. Um, different stories, personal stories that are being woven into the fabric. That is the shrimp net uh, covering a geodesic dome that was donated to um, Homa people after Katrina, and I've used it for everything from a studio space to a greenhouse to, um, you know, a shed after, um, and now it's this art piece that is shared in the community. <laughs> right. So I just want to tell everybody that in addition to your piece, um, inside the River House are um, photographs of people of St. Bernard taken by um, really incredible uh, photographers and artists, Keith, um, Keith Calhoun and, and Chandra McCormick, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Traviesa, Blake Boyd, um, Kelsey Skult. Um, yourself, uh, Monique Prodan, of course, and, and we still on the second floor of the house have um, 
some of the landscape uh, works that we opened with um, uh, in the in the past few months. So um, it's an incredible collection of work. The images of people from Saint Bernard are really just stunning and beautiful and natural. Um, so it's a it's a wonderful art to see, but the site that it's on also is extraordinarily beautiful. So, again, I think this weekend, all the weekends coming up in October are going to be spectacularly beautiful. I encourage everybody to come out Saturdays and Sundays from 11 to 4. On October 17th, we've got a bunch of really special things happening, including videotaping of interviews with people. So if you want to tell your story, come out on the 17th. And then um, in December, we're going to do um, a great market trail, but I'll tell you more about that in future shows. You know what? I'm out of time, and um, I really, uh, we, we had a lot going on in this show today, and we got through it, and I'm just thrilled to have been with you, and uh, I'll see you next week on Crosstown Conversations. This is Jean Nathan with my buddies. Bye.